Folks, uh, welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, bold solutions, and a renewed sense of meaning and purpose in their journey to advance patient-centered, consumer-oriented, value-based healthcare. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization that I may be affiliated with. Uh, folks, the focus today is, uh, again, on one of the most critically important and rapidly advancing issues in healthcare uh, with wide and deep impact on our health, on our salaries and benefits and the health of our families, our communities, our economy. This is the issue of employer-based healthcare. Uh, I'm not going to go through the entire intro or even introduce our speaker again because this actually is the second half of a two-hour-long interview I conducted with uh, David Cartona, Contorna, who is uh, really quite expert um, in and an amazing practitioner in the uh, field of employee health benefits. Uh, he's a broker advisor, but um, he is a an extremely value-based and consumer-oriented uh, employee health benefits broker um, with a very, very different approach uh, to doing this work. Um, the first half of the interview, and if you haven't heard the first half, I would urge you to go back and listen to that first because uh, it'll really give you a bit of background into very, very specifically how David goes about uh, creating value-based employee health benefits um, programs. He gets into some detail and we get into some detail about it. So I would urge you to pause this and go back to the uh, uh, first half of this interview, which should be uh, the previous episode in this podcast series. In this uh, episode, which is going to be, I think, incredibly exciting and engaging, uh, we're going to get into David's approach to managing medication costs, his approach to PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers. We're going to talk a lot about uh, high deductible health plans and HSAs, um, health saving accounts. And David has a very, very different perspective and take on this. Uh, David's going to offer his prediction on the next three to five years of healthcare, which I think you'll find very interesting. Um, and finally, I think what we're going to hear a lot about, particularly in the second half of this interview, is really David's courageous path, uh, the courageous path he's taken in his career, he has really stepped out and, 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 and stood up in a way that is quite unusual in creating a uh, value-based uh, transformation of employee health benefits. So uh, I do hope that uh, you enjoy this interview as much as I did and learn as much as I did from listening to him in the second half of this interview. Without further ado, we're just going to cut right into uh, the second half of this uh, interview with uh, David Contorna. And so you wanted to get on the same side of the table and say, hey, listen, I'm going to work for you now and I'm going to benefit if you benefit. And I want to hitch my, you know, my revenue and mm -hmm. my uh, profit margin to how much I save you. And so that's, that's how you started the story. And so, right. and to do that, as you were saying, I mean, that seems to me to be a much harder job, uh, much more complex uh, to pull that off than what you were doing before. You had, you had to learn a whole new set of skills around yes. how do you build an employee health plan, you know, creating these bundles, um, right. looking for cost-effective, high-quality uh, providers and provider groups, uh, setting up primary care, uh, direct primary care, again, you know, high-quality, uh, high-volume, you know, actually pushing primary care and increasing the volume of primary care because it's preventive, and proactive and in the end lowers total cost of care, uh, looking for options, diagnostic options that are lower cost, uh, setting up second opinions. I mean, there's, the, and I'm sure there's more inter interventions that you've introduced. I mean, this sounds like really putting a yeah. complex puzzle. And again, it's, it's also dependent on the geography. So if you're, you know, if you're in North Carolina working with an employer, there's local practices and, you know, and every employer you go to in a different geography, you're going to have to sort of look for the right resources. So it just seems incredibly, um, uh, it requires a lot of expertise as well as uh, and knowledge, as well as just a lot of hard work. And so just, you know, is that the picture? <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I mean, look, first of all, the very first time that these strategies intervened in a positive way was a woman 
who was going to have back surgery. She's going to have two of her vertebrae infused. And her doctor, her spinal surgeon, surprise, surprise, was saying, let's do spine surgery. And we wound up getting a second opinion. And this woman was very resistant. She trusted this doctor. She thought that her employer and her health plan was intervening in her health and they had no right to do it. I mean, she was indignant over this. And, but we, the employer luckily stood true. And this was before I had the evidence I do today and said, no, you were not covering that spinal surgery unless you get the second opinion. If you get the second opinion, we'll still cover it, but we're not covering it until you get the second. And we wound up getting a second opinion on uh, on her from a doctor from New York City who works at Hospital for Special Surgery. And he said, absolutely not do you need spinal surgery. As a matter of fact, if you go have spinal surgery, I predict that you will wind up needing at least three more in your lifetime, maybe more than that. Instead, you need physical therapy. Now, I know you're in too much pain for physical therapy. So what you need for that is a very specific injection in a very specific spot that will reduce your pain to allow you to get the physical therapy you need to allow you to address the problem without getting surgery. And somehow she listened um, and she went ahead with that method because it seemed so radical and so much less invasive. She said, what's the worst case scenario? I'm in pain for a few more weeks or a few more months. I've been dealing with this for years. I can handle that. Well, it's now three and a half years later. She never had surgery and she has been 100% pain-free for almost three years. When I saw that, I became addicted to that. I don't care if I made less money, if it put me in the poorhouse. It is the right freaking thing to do. And to think of these people that are going in for spinal infusion surgery that doesn't make them better. And what drives me even nuts, back to the Stockholm Syndrome analogies, I can't tell you how many patients had spinal surgery, it didn't fix the problem, and they go back to the very same spinal surgeon to try and continue to fix it over and over again. So, yes, this is a lot of work. And I will tell you what, though, it's exceptionally more rewarding personally, but let's talk about the finances of it for a minute. My revenue per client mm -hmm. is up 22% since I went through this model. My... So I'm making more money. I'm just doing it by providing actual value to my clients instead. And I think every broker, consultant, right. advisor has been doing right. this for 20 years. They've been underworked for that time period. Come on, step up to the plate and put more work in, get paid more money and do the right thing. But I will tell you what else, and I'm, this may be specific to me. I have a very <laughs> strong creative side to my brain. And putting spreadsheets with rates of Blue Cross and deductibles of United and Cigna together did not scratch that creative itch. The type of plan designs that I'm talking about, looking at a claims problem or a possible surgery coming up and figuring out how do we get that patient to the best place of care possible for the lowest cost, that allows me to flex those creative muscles. And one other thing, care doesn't have to be local. I think primary care probably should be, mm -hmm. but I know people that will drive from Charlotte to Atlanta because their car they want is a hundred bucks less a month at a dealership in Atlanta, but they won't go to Cleveland clinic for the best heart surgery in the country. That by the way, happens to be less than half of the national average in terms of cost. Why would you not do that? Mm -hmm. Doesn't have to be local. We have this notion that we have to go down the street or the, to the big buildings that exist in our local urban center. Why? Do you, so let me ask you that question then. What, why, what are the obstacles? What are the impediments to, to more people, more benefits consultants? And I'm, am I using the right term? Is that what you would call yourself or what? what yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Consultant or advisor, uh, just not broke. <laughs> what, what, um, why isn't this more widespread? Why aren't there more people like you? Is, is this something, is it, you know, that it just, takes so long to learn to do what you're doing. It uh, requires, you know, knowledge that, that benefit uh, consultants and advisors don't have. Um, is it, uh, I mean, because it seems to me that you're, you're, what you're saying is, and I can see this, the, clearly the employer is benefiting, uh, the, the cost of care going down and, and more appropriately, right? Um, the, the employees benefiting, uh, cause they have to, they're paying less and they're getting better care and better care outcomes. Uh, the providers who participate in this, uh, I think, uh, as you pointed out, uh, could actually be uh, making more money and uh, 
be, being uh, doing more mm-hmm. more work and better work and more meaningful work uh, and uh, in, in systems that are set up for that and to allow them to do that. So it seems like it's a win all across. And so is this is what you're doing a trend um, or are you an outlier? Um, I'm still an outlier, unfortunately. I put about half of my time into trying to educate my industry and motivate them. Uh, but at the end of the day, I am fighting some exceptionally powerful thinking and some exceptionally powerful financial arrangements. Um, I no longer work with the large carriers, but every time I get a quote from Blue Cross, um, it says, oh, by the way, if you write this case with us, you'll get a $25,000 bonus or a $50,000 bonus. And then when that case comes up for renewal a year from now, it's, oh, by the way, we'll give you another $5,000 bonus if you renew it. But if you don't renew it, we're going to cut your compensation on your entire block of business because you didn't hit a 98% persistency with us. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the average broker who could have 50, 60, 80, 90% of his or her revenue coming from Blue Cross – If Blue Cross is going to cut that by 20, 30, actually in North Carolina, it's as much as a 67% swing from high to low. Can you imagine what that would do to the average broker who's making a million dollars a year and they're going to be cut 67% on their book of business? I mean, it literally puts you out of business and bankruptcy. And so they instill those fears in that broker to perpetuate their – they shouldn't be called brokers. They should be called agents of the insurance company or employees of the insurance Mm. company. Because that's who they're paid by, number one. That's who they're incentivized to protect. And it's a completely broken model. So there's very powerful thinking and very powerful finances that's at play here that are contrary to my thinking. Yeah. And, you know, I, I heard when I spoke to Dave Chase and, and when I read his book, uh, uh, you know, his health Rosetta, uh, you know, uh, he, he was saying pretty much the same exact thing you're saying. And, um, but he, what he's trying to do and, and is, is build a, um, you know, collaborative, uh, you know, get benefits consultants and, and advisors to, to come on board with, I think, uh, what sounds like a very, very similar thing to what you're doing. And so have you, um, I, I know you have a relationship with them and our colleagues. Um, are, are you working with Health Rosetta to, and I think part of it is really, and tell me if I, if I'm misspeaking here, but I think part of it is actually, you know, helping to provide some training and knowledge and experience from people like yourself to others who might want to follow in your footsteps. Is that, am I characterizing it or, or yep. you please fill in it? No, you, so, well, so in full disclosure, I, I outside of, so the, the Health Rosetta was founded by Dave Chase and Sean Shanson, and I was the very first person involved in Health Rosetta outside of those two. Um, I helped write the book with Dave. I have a couple of chapters um, attributed to me specifically, one of which is on how to pick a benefits broker or consultant and the games that that are played and why you need to watch out and, and align the incentives. So I have a very close relationship with them. But um, yes, we are. The first step was how do we build demand among the brokers, consultants, advisors? And we've done that very successfully. Then it was how do we make sure the only ones we allow in are ones that are like-minded, mission-aligned, and we refine that process. Then we move to how do we educate them? Cause they're, you know, they're at all different scales. I'm probably at, you know, further along than most of them. So mm-hmm. how do I spread my knowledge and the bumps in the road that I took and make it so that it's as smooth and effective for them as possible? So that's part of the goal. And now we're moving to how do we build an entire ecosystem? So how do we build out employer demand? So Dave often uses the lead analogy. There are buildings that are lead certified, which means they meet certain measures of, of energy efficiency. Um, we want to create a similar um, stamp for health plans that are that are properly aligned and efficiently run. So how do we bring the, 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 the players in place to make that happen? The right plan administrators, the right pharmacy managers, the right stop loss vendors, the right medical management companies, ones that are willing to be transparent and, and create revenue models that align with the client, with the employer, with the patient. And so that's what the stage that we're at now. And we're working on that pretty actively. So, so, so- Dave, I want to go back to, thank you for sharing that. So wait, first question, how many, how many brokers are out there that uh, belong now to, to this movement, to this health Rosetta? We just let in a bunch more and I would say it's around 120 to 140, somewhere in that vicinity. Um, we get hundreds or maybe even thousands of applications, but 
the number one critical piece is mission alignment. And the, the way that we vet that out is through a pretty extensive interview process, actually. Wow. Wow. I didn't know that. And, you know, going back to this issue of the payers and you've been using Blue Cross as a, uh, <laughs> as an example. Um, so, you know, I, I've, I've spoken to folks at the Blues and as well as other, you know, payers and over the years and, and even recently. And, uh, you know, some of the very, very senior leaders. And it seems to me, and again, I think I, I can't speak for five or 10 or 15 years ago, but at least in the conversations I've been having over the past two, three years and the people I've been meeting, you know, I, I get the strong sense and impression that they are mission driven and they want to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and they're even taking steps to make changes. And again, there's very, very concrete examples of individuals, um, who are doing this actively have been doing it over the past, you know, few years and are currently trying to make dramatic changes. I think a case in point is even here in North Carolina with Blue Cross Blue Shield that, you know, they have a new CEO, um, and, uh, Patrick Conway, I've spoken with Yeah, him. Patrick and, 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 uh, coming from, you know, CMS and, and, um, uh, a, a new chief medical officer and, um, who had worked with Patrick. Uh, and so there's a lot of very, um, you know, uh, at least as I understand it, very serious intention around, uh, reforming and transforming that industry. So number one, you know, your, your, your perspective on that and, and is it different than mine? And two, um, and again, you have a lot more experience in, in this side of the business than I do by far. Uh, but two is, is there a way that, uh, those large payers can be, uh, redesigned and reorganized to work um, and actually do the work that you're talking about, um, in the way you're talking about it, or is it just that the structure is so different that it, it wouldn't allow for that. And we really need a new structure. Well, I think the best example that I can, at least this happened to me a few weeks ago, um, blue cross and blue shield of North Carolina specifically sent me a notification via certified mail saying that I was being deappointed with them and that I could no longer sell their products or services. So my first question in response to what you just said is if, if, if I have any recognition as being a leader and doing the right thing, why would they want me to be as uninvolved with them as possible? I mean, that to me says everything. So, but let's take it a step further. Patrick's been in place almost for a year now. I think it's been nine, nine or 10 months, roughly. There's not been a single new plan design. There's not been a single new payment methodology. There's not been a single new transparency tool. There's been nothing, literally nothing except the same old, the same bonus structures are involved for me to write and keep business with them. Nothing has changed. So what I see is a lot of talk that employers demand. I mean, there is no way that an employer would go with a Blue Cross if Blue Cross said, our goal is to increase costs, right? Nobody would use them if that was their message. So they have to have a message in the market to say, let me tell you what we're doing and how it's so great and how it's going to help your employees and lower your costs. But the results of the last 40 years are not only evident, but consistent. So again, they've been talking value-based contracting for five years or more, certainly since ACOs and the ACA, if, if, if not before that. Where are all these benefits coming from? Costs haven't slowed down. Most importantly, out-of-pockets have gone up at the most ridiculous rate that we've ever seen. So there's been a mass deterioration of coverage and benefits in that time period. And that's the only reason we've seen a slight slowdown, I think, in, in the actual increase in premiums. Um, it's just a cost shift. It's not a, it's not a decrease in premiums. It's pushing more of that cost to the employee or the patient. Right. Where is the results? Tell me. And how come Zev, how come I don't, I didn't even graduate college and I can put a plan in place that is less expensive by 47% on average than Blue Cross. They can do it. Mm -hmm. They're choosing not to. And most importantly, if you look at how they make money and how they feed their shareholders, or in the case of Blue Cross, their boards, because they're quote unquote a nonprofit, 
their model doesn't speak to lowering costs. And if you look at the shareholders of the publicly traded companies, those are the people that have benefited the most. The average publicly traded health insurance company is up 750% since Obamacare passed. So, you know, again, you can look at everything they're saying and they say, and, and the reason I think they're saying the right things is because I think they're good people. I think Patrick's a great guy. I spoke to him on the phone. He has a great reputation. We have a systemic problem. Right. It's not a person problem. And the entire, I promise you, if Patrick really is as altruistic as I think he is when I spoke to him on the phone at length when he first came on board, he's going to hit a system that doesn't want him to do the things that he wants to do. And even as CEO, there's tremendous politics, perhaps even more so in a nonprofit. Um, and in a for-profit, you have shareholder value. It's all your sole goal, your mm -hmm. primary goal is to drive shareholder mm -hmm. value. And the things that I do cut costs so much and therefore cut profits mm -hmm. so much that it doesn't align with those. Yeah, I think, I think you know, I think your, your um, sort of response is, is important because it's, it is, again, as you know, I mentioned before a few minutes ago, it's, we know this from the science of, you know, quality and, and improvement. It's, it's not the individuals. It's, um, it's the system. And, um, unless an individual could come in and really radically change the system, the system will force the behavior. And so, uh, you know, I think that's the question on the table is can individuals, uh, who are coming in with a different mindset really create the kind of radical transformation that will change the system, um, that will lead to different behaviors and different, uh, contracts and, and different relationships and different outcomes. So it's, you know, and I think these, well, that's why I think it starts with the real payer of care, which is the employer. They control the checkbook. They're just choosing to not exercise that. Well, control. let's, let's, but if they did, right. no, let's go there. You know, I think, I think that's a great statement. It, it does. So, so it seems to me, and it kind of goes back to this, you know, the introduction, I, you know, here, uh, uh, that I, I think, it, I think you're actually articulating what you did a moment ago, the, the, um, uh, frustration in, you know, uh, employers saying, look, you know, we've been hearing the same story over and over again. I hear the words, but I'm looking at your actions and what I see is costs continue to rise. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't, I don't see any relief in sight and I'm, I'm still not seeing the value proposition here. So we're going to start to take this into our own hands. And so, you know, there are things that are forming. I mean, clearly, as I mentioned, you know, the last one, of course, with what Amazon is doing, and I'm, I'm curious as to your thoughts about that and, you know, what the health transformation Alliance is doing. Um, so there, there are other, you know, there are employers and coalitions and other groups, right. Tr trying to do what you're doing. And so what's your what's your take on that landscape and that direction? I mean, is it what do you think about that? Well, I don't know. I'm trying not to get too optimistic on it. Um, one of my clients that we actually reduced their spend in year one by 24 percent two weeks after I had that financial meeting with the, with the CEO, he had lunch with Jamie Dimon and it was Jamie Dimon and my client and seven other business owners. And all of them were complaining about the cost of health care. So Jamie Dimon, just for, I, I assume most people know who Jamie Dimon is, right? Um, he's the CEO. I hope so. CEO of JP Morgan. He's right. one of the three that put together the, the, the thing that Atul Gawande is now running. Mm -hmm. um, and so this was just a few months ago. I want to say this was May, April or May. So my client is at this lunch and says, but we're not having those problems. We actually just cut our costs significantly and improve benefits. And everyone looked at him and said, how did you do that? And he talks about the strategies that we put in place. And Jamie Dimon's response was, I've never heard of any of those things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that led me to believe either he's uninvolved in the actual process, which is possible. He's a very big CEO, runs a very big company. Um, or, you know, there, this isn't going to be as transformative as I would like to believe. But if it brings an awareness to the fact that it can be done, if it gives a little more hope to an employer and then I come in the door and back it all up, that I'll take that gladly. Um, but I don't know what it's going to do. I, I don't think the answers are coming from Washington, D.C. I don't think the answers are coming from some large tower in downtown city anywhere. 
Um, I think it's coming from the employers and I think it's coming from the brokers and those are the people that are going to do it. And I often say to my brethren, the brokers and consultants, I said, do you guys realize that of all the professionals that an employer employs to help them, nobody touches the company as deeply and each and every employee and their family members as deeply physically and financially as we do. And I think that we often lose sight of that responsibility in a way that's, that allows us to shrug off the responsibility to say, oh, let me just put this spreadsheet together and whatever United or Cigna or Aetna tell me to put on that spreadsheet, that's what I'll put. Um, but if you look at it from a much deeper level, I think we have a much greater responsibility to that than that. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, we could have, I could have quoted this number earlier on in the intro, but we were talking about some of the statistics and the bankruptcy issue. So the last report I saw, uh, a Milliman report, actually a, a colleague sent it to me, uh, recently, uh, 2018 showed that, uh, the average family spend for healthcare in total is 28,000, some of which is covered, you know, by employers, but still it, it's, it comes, it's all part of the benefits. So it comes out of wages and, and all that. But so it's a, it's a significant amount of money. And, um, you know, I think it just speaks to the point you're, you know, you were just making. Um, as you were talking, I just had another question. Um, you, you mentioned, you know, the, the multiple strategies we talked about and one, one, area or strategy around costs and cost containment is this is the issue of uh, medication spend mm. and and you know i think uh, my take on this literature and my experience is that uh that it, it is the largest single piece of spend um maybe and i'm not sure if this is true or not but it, it, it either rivals or is greater than um than even hospital uh, spend, uh, but it's, it's up there. It's and it's rising mm -hmm. uh, rapidly, and uh, so so the cost of medications is a really big, serious issue and a, and a tough one to tackle. So how how again? And you did kind of uh, talk about this issue of not using PBMs, uh, pharmacy benefits managers. Um, what is your strategy for for dealing with the issue of medication costs? Well, a lot of things we do around that because it is such a big thing. And you're right. We've seen it tick up. I mean, it used to be single digits of the total spend. And now I've seen it as high as 50% of total spend. Wow. Usually it's around 20, 25%, yeah. but it, it varies yeah. a lot. You could have That's one drug, throw that out of right. whack, literally right. one drug. Right. Uh, so the first thing is um, when you build in proper primary care, you reduce the need for especially the higher cost specialty medications significantly. If you look at Humira, which is the number one revenue drug in the United States, it's only clinically effective on 30% of the people taking it. So how do we get even half of the 70% who it's not doing any good for off of it? Because I can't save any more money than 100%, right? I mean, that's the best I could shoot for. Um, so we bring in a lot of clinical backing to especially those specialty meds. There's a gentleman by the name of Promote John who, who owns a company called Vivio Health and they're our go-to specialty carve-out um, manager. And their whole thing is most specialty carve-outs want to just source the drugs for as low as possible. He wants to get them off the drug. And so, you know, how do we get the people off the drug that don't need it? That's number one. Number two, um, when you look at these infusions, um, a lot of them are being done in the hospital, which is 10 times more expensive than having it done at an infusion center or even a home infusion therapist. So place of care is very important. And we see that even on radiology and even, you know, surgeries, outpatient versus inpatient. Um, so getting them to the right place of care is also important. Um, I think the biggest contributor to, and this is how these unintended consequences abound, especially in the Affordable Care Act. But, you know, everyone was so afraid of these lifetime limits. And so one of the reasons the Affordable Care Act even passed was because it was it re required a removal of lifetime limits. Well, what that did is, is that opened up the pocketbooks of the insurance carriers to the pharmaceutical companies. Because, you know, five years ago, pre-ACA, if there was a drug that cost you know, a hundred thousand a month and somebody had a 500,000 or a million dollar cap, that just, it wasn't even an option for the drug manufacturer to charge that price. And now it is because they literally have an unlimited checkbook from which to pull from. 
Now, that's fueled some great R&D and it's fueled some medication development that wouldn't have even been attempted if they couldn't charge those high prices because not enough people are diagnosed with that condition to create a revenue model that would be fed by a lower price. But by the same token, um, it, it sent all the drug costs up significantly. Um, so the number one thing is, do they need to be on that drug? Is it helping them? And if it's not, let's get them off of it. Uh, the PBM thing. I mean, if healthcare is dirty, and I believe it is, healthcare is Mother Teresa next to what the PBMs do. Um, we do use PBMs, but the difference is we use aligned, transparent, pass-through PBMs, and we have a pharmacy PBM last methodology. That is the most expensive place to get the drug, so that's the last place you go. We have you know three, four other stops along the way to get medication, significantly less expensive for the employer, and therefore we make it less expensive for the employee as well. So I think those are the three things: is you know getting the right primary care engaged. When that doesn't work, having real clinical guidelines around when it's effective and when it's not, and using those guidelines, and then when you need to get the medication, when it's clinically appropriate and effective is getting it for the lowest price. Right. Cost. Do you, so I, I imagine, you know, you use strategies around, for instance, generics. And is that what the, you know, the transparent PBM does for you? Is it? it yes. Um, a couple things. Uh, first of all, they use real clinical guidelines on their formulary tiering, as opposed to the large PBMs, which try to steer patients to the drugs that are going to provide the most revenue to the PBM. Um, so that's number one. Um, and you see the evidence. I mean, Express Scripts got sued for removing generic Adderall from their formulary when generic Adderall was way less expensive, but there was no rebate on generic Adderall. And there was a rebate on the name brand Adderall. So we know that those gains exist, but there are other tools and, and tactics that PBMs use to make money, such as um, spread pricing, which I don't even know how spread pricing is legal, because if it were done in the stock market, you'd be arrested. Um, but spread pricing, for those that don't know, is basically when a PBM charges the health plan $40 for a drug, but only pays the pharmacy $30 for that drug and keeps the $10 spread. Uh, even though they're getting paid admin fees on top of that and everything else. So um, what, where do they deserve that? They, they don't. Um, and it only incentivizes them to fill drugs that may not be necessary to fill to begin with. It's one of the reasons why I think we have the opioid epidemic is because PBMs are happy to let that drug fill because they only get paid when they fill a drug. Right. Um, one of the PBMs we work with charges a per member per month administrative fee. The number of drugs they fill are irrelevant to their revenue model. And I really think that that removes a lot of the perverse incentives. So everything comes down to payment, payment of how we pay for care, payment of how we pay the vendors, payment of how we pay the brokers. When you make that more transparent and aligned, then everyone has incentives to work together in the best interest of the employer and the patient. So a couple more questions. Um, and you really touched upon this. Um, the um, the the whole issue of high deductible health plans and HSAs, and you you did kind of you, you did kind of riff on it before, but um, you know, and I riffed on it a little bit too. But I, I I'd like to just come back to it and kind of hear your critique of you know straight out why why you think that it's it's not the right thing for for um, for employees and their families um, and even for employers for that matter. Well, here's why. Look at HSAs have been around since the year that Bush was reelected. So we're 8, 12, 14 years ago. Okay. Mm -hmm. Those that adopted HSAs early, maybe they saw a slowdown in increases for a year or two, but they've been on the same exact train. And an HSA, if you look at an HSA compatible plan, an HDHP, in the scope of plan designs, if you put the richest plans all the way to the left and the leanest plans all the way to the right, every single HSA compatible plan is going to fall towards the right. So my question to the employer that adopted the HSA is, okay, so you saved a little money the first couple of years. Now you're on that same trend that you've been on before. Mm -hmm. So what's left for you to do? You can continue to make the deductibles higher until you hit the Obamacare maximum deductible. Right. But once you do that, you're now in the worst plan possible at the highest deductible possible. You are now 100% at the mercy of your carrier. Whatever they say your increase is, you're stuck with. You have no choice in the matter. You've pulled all the levers that you can in that environment. Now what are you going to do? That's my question. So that's problem number one. But problem number two is 
the reason they saved money the first couple of years was employees were so ridiculously shocked by the cost of care and their inability to know what that cost is going to be beforehand that they avoided mm-hmm. care. And that avoidance of care, we see it in the data. It's so yeah. clear. The necessary care goes down too. Yeah, the unnecessary care goes down some too, but so does the necessary care. And avoiding necessary care results in more care being necessary. Yeah. Right. If you don't treat your diabetes well, you're going to wind up with an amputation or some eye problem or, you know, whatever. So then think about this, Zev. This is what really, this is the circling the drain Mm -hmm. part that really drives me nuts. So I'm an employee. I have a $5,000 deductible. I have diabetes. I can't afford the deductible. So I don't treat my diabetes well. I eventually wind up in the ED or some sort of surgery. And now I owe the $5,000, right? But I don't have the $5,000. I didn't have it before. I certainly don't have it now. So what does the hospital do to that $5,000? They write that debt off, right? And so the hospitals have had mounting and mounting bad Mm -hmm. debt over the last 10 years. So when their contract comes up with the PPO network, they say, hey, United, you're slinging these ridiculously high deductible plans. So we're writing off more and more bad debt. So we need to increase our reimbursement rates from you. And United can't not have Atrium or Novant or Mass General. I mean, you you name it in the plan. So they have to relent and give an increase to that hospital system. Well, that increase in reimbursement rates translates into an increase in premiums. The increase in premiums translates into an increase in deductibles to offset that increase in premiums, which translates into more avoidance, which translates into more bad debt, which translates into higher costs. I mean, I don't see any other path for that. I mean, the, again, this is not conjecture. The evidence and the data is all out there. It's pretty clear. So I actually argue that not only are HSAs not fixing the problem, they're actually making the problem worse. Right. And I think, you know, what I've heard and read is that, you know, employers will say, well, we're combining the HSA with the high deductible health plan. So we're actually, and, and then contributing to the HSA, right? So they're it's, it's, uh, pre-tax, right. And, um, and, and there, some are actually, you know, putting in, uh, some money into it for their employees as well. So their, their argument would be that we're actually helping the employees fund their high deductible, but that well, I want to hear your, 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 the explanation for your laughter, but, but I think, you know, the logic you just articulated still hold, which is if the fundamental, fundamental underlying mechanism is, is not, you know, one could argue it doesn't make sense. It's not, at least it's not optimal because it is a blunt instrument. And I think, you know, I just have to say, I mean, I, I just spoke to Zach Cooper, who's a, a health economist from Yale, um, superstar, um, done some amazing research. And, you know, the research that he shared with me, his most recent publications are demonstrating that, um, you know, uh, employees, patients uh, don't make uh, you know, good decisions around spending. They're, they're not looking at the data, even when it's there. Um, they're influenced by their physicians and where their physicians refer. And, uh, you know, and the physicians are just not aware. Um, they don't have it, you know, at, at hand too. I mean, mm-hmm. and so, um, and they don't, you know, it's not traditionally, it's not seen as part of, you know, the physician's role to, to manage the cost of care. So they're, they're, you know, they were never trained in it. They're not provided the resources in it. They don't see it as part of their role. And so they're mm-hmm. referring, of course, you know, if they're in an IDN, right. they're referring into the IDN. Um, that's what his research is showing. Um, he's showed that, uh, that patients will uh, mm-hmm. travel literally past six MRI machines that are lower cost than the one that they actually use. And so it's not mm-hmm. about geography and it's not about convenience. Um, it's just that they're being steered there and they're not acting like a consumer. And so it really challenges this whole notion that if you put pressure on the employee, that they're going to make better decisions about care. And I think most economists, healthcare economists would say there's the evidence is absolutely contrary to that. So the underlying mechanism, the underlying theory of the high deductible doesn't work. And just because you pay into it as an employer doesn't really solve that underlying fundamental flaw. And to your point, it's a cycle. So it, it, it's just feeding itself. And, you know, in the end, it comes back to bite not only the employee and patient and their family, but actually comes back to bite the employer with higher right. escalating costs. That's right. So I agree with yeah. that completely. And even further than that, I can tell you within my own clients where we've taken over plans, we typically get rid of the HDHP plan immediately. Mm-hmm. But we come into situations where they have had the, the high deductible health plan. 
And when you look at the amount, most employers put very little to no money into the employee's HSA account. Because again, it's a big, it's just a cost shift is really the opportunity that employers see in that. And if you look at the number of employees contributing into an HSA account, in the average blue or gray collar firm, I've never seen more than 5% of employees contributing to that. And the 5% that are contributing are always the highest paid, usually the owners. Mm. So you have functionally nobody putting money into that savings vehicle. Listen, I'm on an HSA, mm -hmm. okay? So I'm sitting here bashing something that I myself am on. But frankly, I make a lot more money than the average American. And I'm also a more intelligent healthcare consumer than the average American. It's right. what I do every day. So in, in that instance, okay, I think an HSA is great. But I don't work for the 3% the of America. I'm doing this for the 97% of America that doesn't have that kind of opportunity or those resources. And it's for those people that it fails. And when I post up my thinking on HSAs online, I get pushback very frequently, especially from the brokers who are built a right. whole business model around it. But when I really back them into a corner and get them to recognize who it's good for, it always comes down to being good for an exceptionally small piece of the population. Now, offhand, do you know what percentage of the population in the United States, what percentage of the spending we're talking about uh, that that goes passes through employers that pays for health care is it is it half of us? Forty nine percent. I thought. Okay, yeah. it's a, it's a forty nine percent. Yeah. The, the other half being Medicare, Medicaid, government employees, VA. Okay. So th this is half of the you know three point three trillion dollars or whatever it is at this point. I mean, this is trillion. Right. It's huge. Trillion. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's huge. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and one of the reasons that the Commercial carriers are claimed to be forced to pay higher reimbursement rates is because hospitals cry poor on the 51% that they're being paid for by the government where the government can exercise more control, mm -hmm. even though they don't exercise total control, especially on the drug spends. But, um, right. but it's one of the things they, they cry about. Right. In, in your, model, the direct primary care. And I'm, I'm coming back to it because as we're talking, I'm thinking, you know, kind of going in my mind through all the strategies you deploy. And, um, you know, and again, you know, we're talking about the high deductible and the idea that, you know, this, this is an adverse incentive to use primary care, right. And to use any care. Um, cause it's, you know, I, I mean, it's just human nature. I mean, I'm even thinking about myself. I mean, if I have to pay for it, I'm going to think twice about going to my primary right. care. And, um, it's not inexpensive. Um, you know, I was, so it's, it's not inexpensive. It's, uh, so to say it, it, it's expensive, it's time consuming, um, which, you know, adds to the cost. Um, you know, it's not convenient. And, um, you know, I think that, so it is such a bedrock to underscore what you were saying. Um, you know, primary care should be free in a, in a employer health plan. Mm -hmm. It should be easily accessible. Because in the end, it'll lower the overall costs and everyone wins as a result of that. Yep. And um, so I'm wondering, right? And so I'm wondering, um, you know, again, an, an, it really, you know, I'm trying to understand this argument, uh, you know, that you have uh, around uh, against opposing high deductible health plans. And I think this is a part of it. The And how about care management? So, so care management is such a, I'm not even going to wellness because, you know, been down that path with Al Lewis and others, and <laughs> clearly the the literature and the data show no evidence that wellness lowers costs or improves care, and potentially there's actually some harm that it can cause with you know all sorts of campaigns around weight loss and whatnot um, that do more harm than good. Um, uh, but I guess you know when you're talking about chronic disease management, there's a lot of uh, disease management programs uh, around diabetes and hypertension. Um, you know, heart failure. Um, so what in your, in your strategy, in your deployment, do you, do you just sort of leave it up to the direct primary care to manage all of it? Or do you include care management or what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I, I think it needs to be pretty comprehensive and, and we want the primary care doctor to run point on things, but patients sometimes go, I call it go rogue. Um, and other times they just actively fight the resources we put in place. So we want to have um, supportive systems in place around that, um, and, and a lot of checks and balances. So we'll use that to do that, but it, it's not around getting, it's not around getting the employee to 
make better lifestyle choices. Now, listen, I don't know if you know this about me, Zev, but I lost 200 pounds. I used to be type 2 diabetic. I used to be a smoker. I used to be a heavy drinker. Okay. Mm. None of those things exist for me anymore. And they were very difficult to get over. But I can tell you that there is not a single thing that my employer could have slapped on my wrist or charged me a differential in my paycheck to get me to do that. Mm -hmm. And it seems absolutely silly to me that we're trying to reduce the quantity of care being consumed, which is really what a wellness program is attempting to do, right? If you get people well, they use less care. Right. When we're all going to consume care. There are things that no matter how well you are, you can't avoid, like many types of cancer, among right. other things. And yet we're still paying in a ridiculously broken model that can be fixed now. Mm-hmm. So it seems backwards to me to try and go after lifestyle behaviors, which are extremely personal, very in- entrenched in socioeconomic and psychological factors mm-hmm. That requires high personalized care and attention and programs when I can just change the way we pay for care and instantly reduce costs and improve outcomes. Now, if we get to a point in this country where the predominant amount of care is being paid for in a more intelligent, aligned way, then let's put our efforts towards all that. But if you look at things like smoking rates in this country, which are down significantly in the last 20 or 30 or 40 Mm -hmm. years – but yet in that same time period, we've had a reduction in, in um, longevity of life in the United States. As a matter of fact, in the last couple of years, our life expectancy has gone down, not only for the first time um, in the United States and only in the United States, but for the first time in all of documented human history. If you look at Japan, which has the longest life expectancy and the greatest increase in life expectancy year over year over year, They have significantly higher smoker rates than we do. So even though we did all that effort and billions and billions of dollars were spent in, in, in education around smoking and we, we impacted it significantly, we haven't improved our health. Well, I hope, right. Well, I hope you're not, you're not saying that smoking is good and, and stopping smoking is bad. So you're not saying that. No. I think what you're saying, (laughs) I think what you're saying saying is that, that, um, (laughs) is that there are other factors clearly at play here. Um, and it's, it's really more about the chronic diseases and, um, and managing them. Cause I mean, that's to me, at least that seems, you know, it's, it's the yes. diabetes and the hypertension and stuff. It's, it's, it's bread and butter. It kind of goes back to what you said before, when we we're talking about it's bread and butter, preventive, proactive, primary care. I mean, um, you know, and so instead of trying to go, that's right. Yeah, so, um, no, I, I'm listen. I'm a big believer in personal responsibility and taking control of your health. I mean, I live by that every day, like every it. meal, every yeah. morning when I get up at 5 a.m. to go work out yeah. every day. Yeah. Um, Good for you. So I live by yeah. that. But but to get me to do that, like I would, there's just there's nothing my health plan, my employer, right. my even my doctor could have done yeah. to get me there. What got you there? You know, that's a really, I get asked that a lot. I wish I had a single thing to point to to say that was it. I mean, I think it was a combination of I actually had a, a, a major complication with a surgery um, that I almost died and uh, had a really rough 14 months recovering from that. Um, I think that was part of it. I had children come into my life. Um, but but there was no like defining moment um, per se. I did some things differently in this health journey than I did in all my other previous ones for decades that may have played into it. But, um, I can't point to something. I wish I could, cause I would share it and give it to everybody, right. but I right. don't have it. One, I, you know, and I should be, I should be, go, you know, scoping out as opposed to, you know, uh, dialing in, but just a question about behavioral health. Um, so mm-hmm. such an important part of healthcare, uh, you know, major comorbidity with uh, other chronic diseases, um, uh, and, and again, I agree with you that, um, you know, that min, um, minor or moderate depression, anxiety, uh, you know, every primary care physician and, and, and provider should be able to handle. But what about, what about the more serious, uh, you know, uh, psychiatric, uh, behavioral issues in your model? How do you, how do you organize that and, and, and construct that and pay for it? Is that a bundle two or is that? Yeah, that's, well, we like to put it in doorway number two, but it, that is something I don't have as much experience in as I would like to. We're working on it. And so I'm coming up with some mental health um, resources and outlets that um, 
really will will address that. But I think it's all about finding the right incentives and the right payment model, even around that. Um, you know, there that also starts to really delve into some socioeconomic yes. things that I think have much broader yes. implications than just treating someone's cancer or, you know, treating their diabetes yeah. even. Um, and so, you know, that mental health piece is, is definitely more of a challenge, but it's, it's mm -hmm. another area that the carriers were able to beat up the providers on and lower the reimbursement rates to the point where the networks that exist for mental health are pretty yeah. Yeah. crappy. Um, they tend right. to be the lower quality providers. They tend to be, you know, not very diverse um, and, and generalists right. instead of the specialists. So um, it's an area that we need to address from a much broader picture than just a health plan, I think. But we do what we can there. Yeah, no, I think you're right. I think, uh, it, it, you know, there's such a shortage of, uh, you know, really highly trained specialists in psychiatry. Uh, and, you know, it's true in adult and pediatric. And I think it's a function of the fact that we just aren't paying for it appropriately and uh, resourcing it. So I, I agree. You, you know, you touched upon this issue and I'm glad you did about, you know, um, when asked about behavioral health and mental health, it, it really, it really does draw on the string of, you know, what, what we're calling now the social determinants of health. These are the, you know, kind of social and, and, um, and financial and economic and, uh, you know, behavioral issues in terms of, you know, poverty, in terms of the neighborhood you live in, in terms of transportation, uh, do you even have a job, uh, education, um, so these, these are really, you know, the literature is saying this, this is, is demonstrating that this is the biggest, uh, lever, biggest impact on healthcare utilization and spending and, and, uh, overall, uh, outcomes of care and health. And so, you know, I, I think it's a huge topic and, you know, I, I wonder, um, how do you think about this in the context of employee health? Because, you know, as you were sort of alluding to before, you know, we tend to, those of us who are professionals, and I'm assuming most people who are listening to this are professionals, and so we tend to sort of think everyone else is like us, but the truth is the vast majority of employees are not like us, and um, their salaries are much lower, and they're dealing with issues that many of us are not, um, these these challenging social determinants of health. And so I wonder, in your in your context, have you begun thinking about that? Um, it's a, it's a really tough nut to crack. It's, mm -hmm. it's such a huge issue. And so I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about that. It's definitely something I want to delve into. I feel like there's so much low hanging fruit that I can accomplish. That's much easier and much more impactful and much more immediate and much less controversial now. So mm -hmm. I'm really focusing on spreading the things that I know have a big impact. And it, some of the things are so simple. I, I presented to a large publicly traded company a few months ago, and their pharmacy spend for their employees is around $3.1 million a year, just prescription. And their current broker is a large national alphabet house. And they asked them and asked me to do an analysis. Well, their large broker comes back with the PB, uh, uh, switching from Express Scripts to Caremark. And if they switch to Caremark and they make CVS a preferred pharmacy within their plan, meaning give preferential lower pricing to the member by going to a CVS pharmacy. And for those of you that don't know, CVS owns Caremark. Um, they would save 3% on that $3.1 million. I came in with a properly aligned PBM, one that is completely transparent, passes through all the rebates, charges a fixed admin fee, and the savings was about 23%. Wow. On all the same drugs without even switching pharmacies. I mean, wow. come on. That's $700,000 instantaneously. It's mm -hmm. easy. So, mm -hmm. you know, again, mm -hmm. the, 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 what, what you were just relating to is extremely complex and very far reaching and frankly, beyond the scope of anything we would ever call health insurance or even health care. Mm -hmm. um, so it's point. something that I've kind of stayed away from a little bit. I, we have yeah. so much more to fix until we get yeah. to that. And I like to fix. I try to bring solutions that it's hard to argue with. They, they just make so much sense. Whereas if we get into that path, oh my goodness, you know, we're going to have the, the aisle, the political aisles are going to come out and everything else is going to come out to make that as controversial as possible. Yeah, no, I, I think you're, I think that's well stated. And, and I think that makes a lot of sense to, you know, to deal with what, uh, like you say, it's low hanging fruit. You can actually do something about it in, in a short period of time. Now you can do something now you are doing something about it. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, once you get that, you know, we could talk about the other stuff too. So, no, I, th I think it's fair. Um, where do you see 
healthcare going in, in the next, you know, three to five years? Do you, are you hopeful about this? Obviously, you know, you are an outlier. Um, you know, uh, I know what you said is it's, it's not bold in the context of every other industry. It's the norm, but it is, it is bold in healthcare. Um, so you're really stepping out and doing some great work. And, and again, I just, just take my hat off to you. I respect you so much for what you and your colleagues are doing and, and, and trying to change and uh, respect your acumen and your knowledge and your experience in doing it. Um, and the fact that you're trying to grow it and spread it, but well, you know, where, where do you, first of all, where, where do you see you going? Where do you see Health Rosetta going? What is what does Health Rosetta and the movement look like in three to five years? And what do you see the the impact on healthcare? Well, honestly, I see it going one of two ways. Um, I see either we don't move the needle enough to have an impact, and we go single payer or universal healthcare. I really don't see how anything different can happen. If as soon as a Democrat takes the, the president's office and they have the right support um, from Congress. I, I don't see how we can't go that path if we don't change something soon. The flip side to that, however, is if we if we get the momentum that I am kind of like trying to be hopeful that we're actually getting, we could the standard could be health for that. As a matter of fact, every employer could be clamoring for a plan that is deemed worthy of being called a health Rosetta style plan. And it's that path that I clearly hope we go down because I don't see single payer or universal healthcare fixing the problem. As a matter of fact, the same problems exist in the models that would likely be the model for universal or single payer in this country, which is predominantly Medicare, which is a version where the government pays for care, but doesn't provide it. And then the VA model, which is where the government both pays for and provides the actual care. And there are inherent problems in both of them, many of which mirror the problems we have on the other side of the table from, from a private in, insurance side. So I don't see that as a solution. I think it's, it's being touted as a solution by those who can't figure out another solution and just want someone to take care of it for them. Um, so I hope that we're three to five years from now, we're saying, wow, this health Rosetta is the way to go. So what I see occurring now is I see brokers, advisors, and consultants actively reaching out and wanting to embrace these things. Mm -hmm. Not, you know, it's not enough to say 20% doing it, but it's getting out there. And I am being extremely bold in my messaging and doing it. And I'm saying, guys, I was part of the problem for a long time. And therefore, if you're doing what I was doing, which you are, you're part of the problem too. I say it to doctors. I say it to hospital administrators. I say it to carrier execs. I have the data now. I have the confidence to say, guys, we got to change this. And I, I believe that change only occurs when the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the pain of change. And so I feel that my number one role with an employer or even with an individual patient, but certainly within the broader industry, is to make people uncomfortable enough with what they're doing today so that we don't have to continue on this path much longer. Why? We, the, where we're going is ridiculously clear. I can't think of anything more sure than costs are going to continue to go up, benefits are going to continue to go down, and quality is continue to go down. That's the path we've been on for decades. Why do we have to wait until we get to whatever that breaking point is? Why can't we bring us to that breaking point now and start to change now? Because the change has to happen. So what would you, you know, it's clear what you're saying. And thank you. That was, that was really well said. Uh, and your, your tactic of provoking and, you know, being in your face and being honest and, and having the data to prove it, I mean, uh, makes a lot of sense. Uh, <clears throat> And I hear what you're saying to benefit uh, consultants uh, in terms of what they can do. Um, I, I hear what you're saying to employers that they can they can adopt these changes and redesign and reconstruct, reorganize their employee health plans in this way. What about providers? What uh, what can providers are they are, do they need to wait um, for the payers uh, and employers to make these changes, or can they can they start to you know, move it ahead as well and advance it? Well, you know, the exact mechanics of what a provider deals with every day is probably the space of what we've spoken about that I'm least familiar with. Mm -hmm. um, I've read Marty McCary's book, Unaccountable, uh, and that gives some great insight into the motivations um, and, and the difficulties that the doctors who see problems in the system face. It's almost like the, what do they call it? The blue wall among police officers, right? They don't tell on their fellow police officers. They don't mm -hmm. arrest their fellow police officers. Well, the same thing happens in healthcare for the most part. 
And that's a tough thing. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I had to do that within my own industry. I get cut by the insurance companies, the ones that were feeding me and paying me. Now they don't want anything to do with me. Um, my broker brethren, because I'm so contrary to their model and the way they're making money, they push back against me. But I did it anyway. Mm -hmm. And I say to doctors and hospitals, there's two types of and brokers and employers even in this space. There's two types of people. There are either those that are fighting the system every single day relentlessly to the point almost where they're being worn down to a nub and they almost want to give up every day or they're part of the problem. There's no in between. And I think we need to recognize the part that we've all played in this and take responsibility for that and stop pointing fingers everywhere else. And that's what my article that we started the interview with was about. That was my recognition of saying I played a role in the declining scope of our healthcare system and the increasing costs. And I don't want to be playing a role in that anymore. I want to do the opposite. Yeah. No, I, you know, I, I mean, my take on it is I think that in, at least on the provider side, which, you know, I'm very familiar with and I've spent decades in, I think that most people are really well-intentioned. I, I think the, you know, the system is what it is, but to your point, we, you know, if you're in the system, uh, and if you realize this, because I'm not sure how many people actually understand what you understand and realize what's going on, but if you realize it, um, you know, you're, I think the obligation is to do something about it. Um, and, um, you know, I think that's quite honestly part of the reason that I'm doing this, um, you know, amongst other things, um, is uh, to try to get this message out, uh, to try to create the awareness, uh, to inform, to, uh, you know, inspire and, and motivate and catalyze some of this change. And so, you know, for my part, I'm, you know, uh, you know, getting, you know, channeling your message out there is, is, uh, you know, part of what I'm trying to do. And, and as I mentioned, many of your colleagues who are doing very, very similar work along these lines. I think it's, you know, I think it's, I think it's very hard to, you know, you made a change, um, as an individual <clears throat> and, you know, uh, I think it's, 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 a, it's a different story. And it's, I think there's, you know, when you're trying to move these large ships, these, whether they're, you know, large provider groups or large hospital systems, integrated delivery networks or, or large payers, it's, um, it's a, you know, it's, a, it's just at a different level. And I think, you know, the question I'm grappling with is, um, you know, how to understand that change and accelerate that change in a way that doesn't, um, doesn't harm more than it helps. And so, you know, I think that's the, that's the trick. And, right. you know, the truth is like, you, you know, we were talking before, you know, about, you know, uh, Patrick Conway and, and at, at, you know, at Blue Cross Blue Shield and, you know, there are others like him on the payer side and the provider side who, who I think are really well-intentioned. It's, you know, I mean, these are, these are large organizations. They're complex. Um, you know, if you, if you mess it up, you won't be in that seat, right? You're, you're, you're not going to be steering the ship. Um, the, right. the, you know, and so, you know, I think right. they're, it, it, it's a challenge. And I, I, I don't envy people who sit in those seats and, and have to make these decisions because I think it's really tough. And yet at the same time, at the same time, um, what we're talking about is people's lives every single day, every single hour, every single minute. And we're talking about their livelihoods. We're talking about their financial well-being. Um, uh, you know, I was just talking to a friend who, who was, who's a professional who, you know, uh, for, for one reason or another is currently out of work and her spouse is out of work. And, and she literally just had to sell her home. And, and this is a, you know, a well-paid, you know, bright, uh, professional, accomplished, um, this, we're talking about serious stuff here. And, um, and of course we're talking about health and, uh, the number of inappropriate procedures that are done, um, you know, inappropriate medications, inappropriate treatments, uh, you know, overutilization, underutilization, misuse, uh, the amount of harm that causes literally every single minute. Um, you know, that statistic, um, uh, uh, that uh, came out a couple of years ago, somewhere between 200 to 400,000 People each year die unnecessary avoidable deaths in our healthcare system, making our healthcare system one of the leading causes of death in the country, our healthcare system. And again, the fact that we don't know if it's 200,000 or 400,000 speaks to the- I've heard 600 even. <laughs> you know, but it, the, wow. I mean, and these are, you know, it's the equivalent of, of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people dying literally each day. 
unnecessarily. And, um, you know, again, I, I was talking to, um, Len Diavolio, who's a professor at Harvard and, and, um, as a specialist in, in artificial intelligence and machine learning, you know, he, and he's a data scientist. And, you know, he said the fact that we can't tell whether it's 200,000 or 400,000 or 600,000, that speaks to a core problem in healthcare because there is no other industry that has that lack of data. And that's on us, right? That is on us, right? I mean, because the, right, because the science and technology is there. The data science is there. Other industries have been doing this for a long time. Mm -hmm. So it isn't that we can't do it. It's that we decide not to spend the resource to do it. And so I think to your point, I think for me, it's a balance of, and I struggle with this. I understand the challenge. And yet at the same time, you know, I can't get over this, this knowing that every single day, every hour, every minute, people are going broke. Uh, people are, are not sending, you know, they're not able to educate their kids because, you know, they're, and, and they're suffering physically, uh, health wise, all because of the crippling costs and inappropriate, uh, system we've set up in healthcare. And so I just, I can't reconcile myself with, with not doing something about it. I know you've devoted your life now to doing something about it. So, so anyway, I think, you know, um, I just, again, I, I, I know it's time we got to, I could keep you on the phone for forever, I think, but I, um, I'm going to let you go. We can do a part two. Let's do part two. <laughs> so anyway, you know, I want to, uh, let's conclude. I want to thank our, our guest, David Contorno, who, um, for being part of creating new healthcare and really bringing us some tremendous insights and, and perspectives and absolutely, you know, bold ideas, bold solutions, courageous in what you're doing uh in in healthcare in in the domain that you work in which is huge and hugely impactful like you know so grateful for you and your colleagues that are doing this and i do as always on this uh, podcast series uh i want to thank uh the the folks who are out there who are daily taking care of patients and doing their best and those who are supporting the folks who are taking care of patients because it is hard work and um and it's, it's where the, you know, the actual action of healthcare happens in health. So, so just want to thank you all. And, uh, so until next time, be well again, David, thank you so much. Thank you, Zach.